Good morning. Good morning Jerry. All right. Happy Sunday. Good to be back here, I think. Uh, last week, I was watching Crossroads online from a sofa in Kauai. And uh, actually, that was pretty cool. I could do that more often. But um, <laughs> I had to come back. But anyway, so <laughs> here we are. And actually, it was great last week, wasn't it, to have Pastor Ed preaching? I just, I just loved hearing his message and just hearing from him and his heart again. So uh, we are really blessed to have Pastor Ed still with us and in our, in our congregation and, uh, and sort of the second string quarterback, uh, or maybe the first string, but just not seen as much. But uh, anyway, what a blessing. And, and just to remind you, four weeks from today... Matt Pika, our new pastor, is going to be standing where I am, and he's going to be delivering his first message as the new lead pastor of Crossroads. Amen? Amen. And uh, so you, you got to put up with four more weeks of me, <laughs> but uh, you guys have persevered quite well, so I, I have no doubts. You know, Matt, uh, last month, was saying goodbye to his church. And that's now over. They're now this month transitioning, moving all the things you have to do, moving to a new place. And so we need to continue to pray for Matt and Sarah and their son Caleb in this time of transition. And uh, as well as we're, we're in the middle of a transition as well as we prepare ourselves to receive uh, the Pika family and uh, just welcome them into our hearts and our church. And uh, God is, has got a great future in store for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, well, today, though, uh, we are still in our series on true north. And the idea, again, of true north is that life is full of choices, big choices, small choices, public choices, private choices, and, and how we make those choices depends on how we look at the world around us, uh, what we believe is true, how we think the world works, and, and, and so often the way that the world thinks it works, it, the world has a constantly changing view of what's right and wrong, what's true and what's false. And so if you follow the world's way of thinking, it's disorienting. It can sometimes be paralyzing. You don't know who, do you, should, you, who should you listen to. But true north is about God's creation, God's truth, how he who he made us to be, how he created the world, and, and therefore, what are the foundations that we can base our lives on? And so today, our topic is the most important human relationship that exists, and that is marriage. Now, there are a lot of important relationships. That is sort of the, the foundation and core of society. You might think, well, parent-child, that's pretty important, but that exists because marriage exists, right? That's the way God created it. And so today we're going to take a look at, at marriage. Of course, not everybody in today's world agrees on what marriage is, do they? In fact, marriage in a lot of different ways is under attack in our culture from a lot of different angles. In fact, many people think that marriage is sort of old-fashioned, outdated, irrelevant in today's world, or they want to redefine it, or, or they might even say it is oppressive. I mean, I've heard that about marriage. And the way that the world views marriage too often is completely different than God's original intention for what marriage is meant to be. And so that's what we're going to take a look at is, is God's intention for what marriage is meant to be. Not how we've messed it up, but what God's intention is and what he wants our marriages to look like. Now, I realize that of everybody here today, um, a good portion of us, maybe half of us today, aren't married. Uh, maybe we were married and we lost our spouse or, or went through a difficult divorce, or maybe we're not married and want to be, or maybe not married and don't want to be. Whatever situation you're in, the principles today apply, first of all, to marriage, but they also apply to other parts of life as well. So even if you're not married today, I still want you to listen for how God wants to speak to you about living your life and the relationships you have around you. But before I get to Scripture, I do want to talk about even what the world knows about marriage, although often they want to ignore it, and that is this. Marriage is not outdated, old-fashioned, 
and unnecessary. In fact, pretty much every single study done in the U.S. and in other countries shows that marriage is actually what makes people happiest and it's the greatest blessing to children. The Brookings Institute, which is a, a center-left um, uh, research group, it's, it's actually the most uh, quoted research group in all of American politics and media. Here's what they say about marriage. They say, marriage matters to children. Having married parents typically means that children live in families with more resources, including more time with their parents, and with greater stability. While these factors in themselves point to a range of improved outcomes for children, the benefits of growing up in a family with married parents is more than the sum of its parts. The Brookings sisters said, marriage matters to children. I love that the phrase at the end says, it's more than the sum of its parts, because if you read behind those words, what it means is, we've tried to explain away the advantage that marriage gives to children and families. We try to explain it away by there's greater resources or there's more stability. But the truth is that marriage in and of itself makes a difference that goes beyond the statistics that we can identify. Marriage is good. A similar study recently in, in Britain, a study of 3,822 kids came across, and they said, children whose parents are married are more confident, happier, have better mental health, and higher self-esteem, all of which lead to far better outcomes as those children grow and make decisions and enter into adulthood. And here's the thing. They compared not just sort of single-parent families and married families. They also compared married couples with cohabiting couples. That's couples that are living together with a child. And, and they try to see, you know, common wisdom was that whether you're cohabiting or whether you're married doesn't make a difference because you got two parents in the home, right? Actually, what it showed is that cohabiting parents had statistically the same outcome as single-parent homes. It was in homes where the parents were married that children got the benefit, which is totally not what we would think normally. But the, the truth is, if you want to follow the science, then you've got to say marriage was, if you know, say given, marriage is important for both the people in it and the children that are part of the family. That's what today's world Science tells us, although culture wants to get rid of marriage and its importance. Now, I want to be clear in what I'm saying here. I'm not putting down any single parents. There are a lot of different kinds of families that are represented here at Crossroads today. And we're not saying that, that you have a less than family. You're not a real family at all. Because in this world, there are lots of different kinds of families. I'm talking about statistics which show that generally, married has significant benefits for individuals and for their children. But the truth is, there are some really bad marriages and really bad parents, even though they're in a marriage. And there are some great single parents and sometimes it's a grandparent that's actually raising a kid. And, and, and God can bless any, any family uh, makeup. But the truth still remains that what is best for individuals in a relationship, for parents and for children, all other things being equal, marriage is by far the better choice, if at all possible. So now, with that behind us, let's take a look at what does the Bible say about what it means to be married. And so, I know we're, we're finally to point number one. Um, actually, we're not even at point number one, we're, we're at the review. So, review. We've been talking about how God created us, who we are as people. And so, just a reminder, we were created to continue God's work together. The reason you and I are on this earth, God created us to continue his work of creating and loving and filling the earth and making it a wonderful place to live. That's why we're here on earth. 
as God's representatives. And, and Genesis 1.27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful. Fill the earth. Rule it. Right? So in other words, I, I've created you in my image so you can continue my work of filling the earth, of ruling the earth. Not because we're God's, but because we rule it in God's name as his representatives. Therefore, what we do in the world needs to be carrying on God's work, whether it's in the home or, or at work, in any relationship. Wherever we are in the world, we're carrying on God's work in the world and therefore need to do it in God's way. You know, Jesus didn't reference creation, but, but there's a, one of the most important things Jesus ever said communicates this very thing. On the night he was uh, arrested, the night before he was crucified for us at the Last Supper, he told his disciples this. From John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, I'm giving you a new command. You must love each other just as I have loved you. Now, most of the time we don't think through what that verse is really saying, but Jesus is saying, you were created to continue God's work in the world. And God is a God of love. He loves you. I have expressed and shown that what that love looks like. Now, you are created to continue that work. So you need to love each other the same way I loved you. Because that's actually why we were created. It's not just some add-on to life. This is the foundation of life. Loving the way God loves. Loving the way Jesus loves. And that is the foundation of marriage. Is that in marriage, two spouses, a husband and wife, they are God's representatives to each other. They are to pass on God's love to each other. And as they do that, to then pass on God's love to children, friends, the world around them. And so, what does God actually say about marriage? And remember, we're starting in Genesis and saying, Genesis 1 and 2 are, are, are creation before sin enters the world, before we sort of messed it all up, right? With our own sin and selfishness, etc. So what did God intend before we messed it up? So we begin with, uh, in Genesis, and our first point today is that we were created to need a partner. We were created to need a partner. And, and you may... Uh, Realize, obviously, in America, we prize what? Independence, right? In fact, we celebrate every year our Declaration of Independence. But the truth is, as much as we may prize independence in so many different ways in life, God actually prizes interdependence. Not to be independent of other people, but, but mutually dependent and relying on each other. That's the only way things work well in life, either as a society or as an individual. God created us to need a partner. In fact, Genesis 2, verse 18 says, The Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. It's not good for the man to be alone. That was God's assessment. Alone, not good. Right? So he created a, what they say, a helper suitable or just right for him. And, and, and so what does that actually mean? A, a helper just right for him. And uh, I, I've mentioned this before, but helper does not mean assistant, employee, servant. In fact, the word helper is used 21 times in the Old Testament. 21 times. Of those 21, two refer to Eve being a helper. Three refer to other people or nations helping another. 16 times, the vast majority of times, it's actually used to refer to God helping us because guess what? We need help, right? I mean, <laughs> just be brutally honest, we need help. So God is our helper. So when scripture says, I'm gonna create a helper just right for you, he's not saying a servant, a subordinate, He's saying, you need help. I'm going to create a partner for you. 
And then this, this phrase, just right for you. Uh, in the past, it's been suitable. Um, old, old translations say help meet or help mate. Um, but the Hebrew word, which you don't care what it is, um, konegdo, means face-to-face, opposite to, complementary to. In other words, I'm creating a helper who is going to be facing you, who is opposite you, who you will relate to, but who is very different from you. It's not just, I'm not cloning Adam. I'm creating a helper that is going to be opposite to him, different, because we need a partner who is, in fact, different from us. And so in marriage, God intends for the husband and wife to, to literally be different, to have different abilities, skills, perspectives. In other words, God intended for you to argue in marriage. Isn't that freeing? Some of you are going, then we've nailed it, right? <laughs> We're doing so good with that. But uh, here's the thing. Maybe I should say rather than argue, God intended for husbands and wives to disagree. When I say argue, often we have a worldly view of arguments that is negative. Arguments actually can be very healthy. Disagreements can be very healthy when we approach them well and with love and humility, which is hard sometimes, isn't it? Well, it, it is for me sometimes, maybe not for you. But for most of us, I think it's a little hard sometimes when we disagree because we like to think, I'm right. Right? I mean, who here doesn't know? We all tend to think we're right, right? But here's the, the beautiful thing. None of us is right. If you think you're right all the time, then you are simply wrong. Right? And that's the truth. I mean, I'm a, I'm a regular person. I tend to think I'm right. But guess what? God gave me a wife to disabuse me of that fallacy. Right? I have one way of looking at things. But my wife has a very different way of looking at things. And if I reject her way of looking at things because it's not mine, then I am the poorer person. Because sometimes my wife's perspective has given me wisdom and helped me make decisions that were far better than the trouble I would have gotten into without that different view. Because we disagreed. The key is when we disagree... Rather than dismissing the other, rather than letting it divide us, we need to appreciate that difference, that it is a gift from God and given to us to be able to live life better than we could on our own. And so when God created marriage, he made the man and the woman different so that we could actually be better together, right? God created us in his image, male and female, he created us in his image. We need male and female to fully live out God's purposes in the world in order to to live life the way God desires us to, to to love the best way, to, to fill the earth and to move forward in the best way. Whether we're married or not, we need other people. If you're not married today, you still need friends around you who can sometimes give you a little check on what you want to do, right? I mean, many of us use a good friend. We say, here's what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? They'll go, "Uh, yeah, let's take a step back here, right? So we all need people, even if we're not married. But marriage is that wonderful place where we have this now built-in partner with a different perspective where we're supposed to disagree Because let's be honest, this world is messed up. The decisions we have to make in life can sometimes be really hard. Like, you know, do you squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom or do you do it in the middle? Anybody have a disagree? No, anyway. You know, sometimes sometimes choices we make are really easy. But sometimes those easy things can can cause a lot of friction in a marriage. It's crazy. But, you know, but they get bigger. Like, should we take a new job? Should we move to a new town? You know, what about the schooling of our children? Um, or, you know, one of the most heartbreaking things that I've seen families, uh, uh, couples struggle through is what do you do when you have a child who is addicted 
and they're still living at home and maybe they're stealing from you and they're lying to you and, and, and what do we do? Do we kick them out? Do we keep them? You know, what does love look like? And that can be agonizing. You need a husband and a wife to have both their perspectives and to work through that together. You need to be able to fight and disagree well so you can come to the very best decision, right? We need that. That's God's gift to us. The temptation is that, uh, you know, sometimes we think, well, arguing is not right. But one person plus one person equals at least one argument, right? One person in love plus one person in love often means false unity. Oh, I don't, you know, how many people, and maybe you've experienced this too, you don't want to tell, especially at the beginning of a relationship, you don't want to tell someone you disagree with them. You're afraid that might destroy the relationship. They might not like me if I disagree. And we're going to talk about that in, in a minute. But, uh, but if you just go along with what your spouse thinks, because you don't want to rock the boat, then you're actually doing a disservice, not only to yourself, but to your spouse, your husband, or your wife. Now, obviously, how we disagree, how we communicate that is all important. It needs to be with a servant heart and in love. But we need that from each other. We should never say, I don't need your opinion. In fact, Paul says something similar to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He's talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about the church body together, but, what he's, but it applies to marriage. And he says, for the body itself is not made up of only one part, but of many parts. So then the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, nor can the head say to the feet, well, I don't need you. You know, sometimes in our, we, we get this, our pride sort of swells. I don't need you. I don't need your idea. I don't need your thought. I don't need your, your opinion. But actually, we do. We really do. And that, again, is God's gift to us. Life is too complex. We are not right all the time. We need others around us. The thing is, to be able to share what we think, to be able to share our perspective with a husband or with a wife, there, there's something that needs to be there to make that a safe place, right? I mean, sometimes we don't feel safe. There's some circumstances we don't feel safe. You may be at work and, and you're with a lot of other, other people and you know, maybe you're the low, low man or woman on the totem pole and you don't feel safe offering an idea. Or maybe you have a boss that shoots down everything, right? Only wants people to, to hear his opinion. And, and sometimes environments are not safe to share your perspective, your view, and to add to the conversation. But in marriage, it, it's supposed to be a safe place. And so our second point today is this. Your spouse deserves your highest loyalty. Your spouse deserves your highest loyalty. You know, there are a lot of things in, in, uh, in this world that, that vie for our attention, our value, our loyalty, but God says, your husband, your wife, is your number one earthly priority and loyalty. The only thing in this world that eclipses the loyalty of a spouse is our loyalty and our love of God. Amen. That's it. Nothing else. Period. Nothing else should even compete with it. God says this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. That is why after God says, to the, to the man, says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper just right for him. Give him a partner opposite to him. This is awesome. So he creates the woman, brings the man and woman together. And the man goes, this is amazing. That's the Hebrew. Um, <laughs> bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is a partner. Right? And then the very next verse says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. That's why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, interestingly enough, it says a man leaves his father and mother. 
which actually is not logistically true in Old Testament times. And in fact, even today, in much of China, India, many other places, often in the Middle East, a man actually often doesn't leave his family at all. Often the woman leaves her family and joins the man's family. Often living in a family home. In some places like India, actually the, the wife becomes the servant of the mother-in-law. How many of you would sign up for that? I didn't think so. But the point is that when this scripture was written, men didn't leave their mother and father. Which is why the Bible says, this is why a man will leave his father and mother. He's not talking about logistics or geography. He's talking about loyalty and priority. Because the idea, the, the social construct at that time was the man retains his loyalty to his family. The wife comes in as... You know, she becomes a part of it, but she's a little lower. But God's word says that is not God's intention. God's intention is wherever, no matter where you're living, a husband leaves his father and mother emotionally, spiritually, financially, and he now unites with his wife. She now becomes the number one priority. Not the parents or the family or anything else. And that's one of the biggest challenges of marriage today because people enter into marriages, but they want to maintain all their old loyalties. They sort of want to live the way they were when they were single, but just with a guaranteed date, right? But no, actually, when you become married, there's a unity described as one flesh where you leave everything else, and this is your new identity, it's literally your new identity. It's no longer me, it's us. And not just sometimes, but all the time. Not just when it's convenient, when you need a date, but 24-7. We are now in us. Which means that when work or your marriage is in conflict, which should be our highest loyalty? It should be my husband, my wife. If there's a conflict between friends and spouse, who wins? The spouse needs to be your highest priority. Sports, spouse, that's a hard one. <laughs> but after the way the 49ers played last week, I'm going to say spouse ought to win. Here's, another, here's a hard one. Children. Who should come first, your child or your spouse? Your spouse. In fact, your child needs for you to love your spouse and have your highest loyalty to your spouse and not them. That can be hard because sometimes as parents, we can put our identity into our children, sort of live through them, and, and, and sometimes children are easier to relate to and love, right? Children often, well, until they hit like 12, but <laughs> my daughter's not here, so... Um, I'll have to change that for the second service. But, um, but children just often, especially the beginning, they just give you unconditional love. In fact, adoration, right? Like you're the most important thing in their life. And what does a spouse give us? Not quite the same thing. Even when they love us. You know? And so sometimes it's easier to, to give our loyalty to transfer it over onto, onto our children. But that's actually bad for our marriage, for us, and our children. My number one loyalty is to be to my wife, your husband. That's the way God intended it. In fact, this whole idea of being united in one flesh, Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You know, let's be honest, we tend to be selfish people, right? I mean, that's just how we're sort of wired right now in our sinfulness. And, and so in our selfishness, we generally tend to put a divide between ourselves and our spouse. And Paul says, no divide. If you want to be selfish, you better include your wife in that selfishness because you are one flesh. To love your wife means you're loving yourself. We're an us now. We're in us. To mistreat your wife, he's saying, or for a wife to mistreat her husband is the same thing as mistreating yourself. 
were an us. That's the way God designed marriage. Now, this next verse is going to just freak some people out. Um, just keep your mind open, okay? This is totally not what the world says. In fact, it's the opposite of what the world says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, it says this. A wife is not master of her own body, but her husband is. Ouch! But in the same way, a husband is not the master of his body, his wife is. Now, in our world, you hear a lot of bodily autonomy, right? My body, my choice. My body, I get to do whatever I want to with my body. Guess what? That may be the world's perspective, but it is not God's. It is not the way he created us. In marriage, I don't belong to myself anymore. My body is not mine. It belongs to my wife. And she belongs to me. We are not autonomous. We don't have that luxury anymore. That's what it means to be united to each other, to become one flesh. We can no longer say, this is, this is my body. This is my stuff. We love to say that, though, don't we? Starting at the age of two until we die. We love to say, that's mine. You can say that about your husband or wife, though. That's mine. And that's right. And I know that this has been abused at different times by different people throughout history. You belong to me. I can do whatever I want. And that's just absolutely not what Scripture teaches. In fact, even beneath the idea that I don't belong to myself, I belong to my wife, and that my wife doesn't belong to herself, but she belongs to me, is the deeper truth that we find in 1 Corinthians 6, which is this. Do you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I do not belong to myself. I belong to my wife. But even more importantly, I belong first to God. The bodily autonomy that the world talks about is simply false. I have responsibility for my body and the choices that I make. And whether I'm going to make those in a relationship, in a healthy relationship or not, whether I'm going to make those decisions knowing that God is my Lord or not. But I don't actually belong to myself. I'm simply responsible for the trust of this life that God has given me. And if I'm in a marriage that God has given to both of us. That's the truth of who we were created to be. And what marriage was meant to be is that when I get married, my number one human loyalty, my, all my desires and hopes now become an us. We together. Either with or against or for the world. However you want to, want to phrase that, but it's us together. And our third point really flows from the necessity of point number two, that we become each other's number one priority and loyalty, and that is that we need to offer each other the gift of acceptance. Offer the gift of acceptance. In, in fact, this is so important. It's one of the reasons why I believe God made marriage to be lifelong. Because when you commit yourself to someone for the rest of your life, and I hate it when vows say, as long as we both shall love, that is like the cheapest way out ever. As long as we both shall live. Because it's, when that, it's in that commitment to another person for the rest of our lives that we say, I am going to accept you for who you are. We are now an us, and that's never going to change. And so I accept you as you are for who you are. It's only in that context that we can be real. Because let's be honest, we all have a fear of rejection in life. In different areas of life, we, it may not be a paralyzing fear, 
Hopefully it isn't, although for some people it is in different areas, but we all have some fear of rejection. If people knew they might not like me, if they knew I might get fired, if whatever, we, we fear rejection. And in the closest relationship that God ever intended us to have, sometimes that fear can be multiplied when we don't have a sense that, one, we are the number one priority of the other person. If we're number five or six on their list, then we do not feel safe at all. Or if we're not accepted for who we are, that when our warts begin to show, when we put on an extra 10 pounds, that somehow they're going to cast us aside. God made marriage lifelong so that we would learn to accept and offer the gift of acceptance to each other. I love the way that Scripture says this. In fact, it's right after, I mean, the next, the next words after, the man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they become one flesh. The next words are these. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. I love that verse in the Bible. I love that description of what marriage is meant to look like. They were naked and felt no shame. And it's not because they had like awesome bodies, because nakedness wasn't about the physical. Physical was a part of it, but the nakedness they were experiencing was nakedness emotionally, spiritually, relationally, morally. They were open to each other. They were vulnerable with each other. They were transparent with each other. And there was no shame. Wouldn't that be awesome to be in a relationship like that? Where there is complete acceptance of you can be who you are, warts and all. I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to accept you, even though we may not need to work. We may need to work on a few things, right? But we all know we, we need to work on a few things. But it's far easier to work on those when we know that we're accepted than we, when we fear constant rejection and shame. You know, the unfortunate truth is that too often in marriages, people use shame as a tool to get what they want within their marriage. And that is completely opposite to what God desires for a marriage to be. There should be no guilt or shame. There should be acceptance, love, openness. Even in the most difficult times, we, God desires us to stay open and stay accepting. It doesn't mean that we can't draw boundaries. Sometimes in a marriage, you've got to draw really clear boundaries when there's some, some, some negative, unhealthy stuff going on. Because that's a part of being in a healthy marriage even. But always accept and remain open to our spouse. No pride, no judgment, no rejection. Just an honest assessment and an acceptance and love of the other person. And, and why is that so important? Let's go back to why we were created. We were created to be God's representatives on the earth, to carry on his work, to, to continue what he's doing in the world. And what is God doing in the world? He loves us. He forgives us. Right? God gets rid of shame. Uh, Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God doesn't want us to live in a sense of, uh, of perpetual judgment and guilt. He wants to free us from that. Two, two chapters later in Romans 10, he says, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And so if God is about loving, forgiving, accepting, holding his arms open, receiving the prodigal son, then if we're gonna be the people we were created to be, we've got to pass that on. And marriage is the number one relationship where that has to happen. If we want a good marriage, we've got to give the gift of acceptance to the other person. Again, we sort of mess that one up too, don't we? Um, in fact, often what happens in a marriage is we use things like shame in order to control people. 
You know, that's, that's what, I mean, why, you know, you, you watch a movie and the mom shames the kids or the dad. Why? It's so they can control their kids or they control their spouse. But that leads us to the final point today, and that is that marriage is not meant to be about control. Marriage is not about control. It's not about power. Well, it is about power. It wasn't meant to be about power. We make it about power. We make it about control. We want to control the other person in our life so that they become, they are what we think we need or want, rather than allowing them to be who they really are. That's why acceptance is so important. And so, from loyalty and intimacy, no shame and acceptance, which was God's intention, in Genesis 3, we move into the part of the Bible after sin and selfishness enters the world. And, 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 and once the, the man and the woman reject God's way of doing things and say, we want to do it ourselves, we, we think we know the better way, God says, well, there are consequences to us. There are consequences to that. So he tells the serpent one set of consequences, the woman one set, and the man another set of consequences of sin in the world. And so I'm going to read to us what he says to the woman. Last week I read what we or two weeks ago, what he, read, what he said to the man. But to the woman, it says in Genesis 3.16, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, I'm just going to ignore the part of, because <laughs> I'm a man, I guess. I'm going to ignore the first part about childbearing. We, we sort of, we, we all get that, right? Well, the women get it especially. But, um, but here's the thing. One of the consequences of sin, he says, your desire, he says, the one will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What's going on there? What's the dynamic here? What does it mean for the woman to desire the man? And there are three different ways people have interpreted that. One is, it's purely a sexual desire. Even though you're gonna, you have pain in childbirth, you're still going to desire that sexual intimacy with your husband. But he'll rule over you. Or, that desire can be a desire to control. Your desire is to control your husband, but instead, he's going to rule over you. The interpretation that I lean toward is you will, still, you will desire your husband in the sense of a relationship with your husband. You will desire the intimacy that you had before. You will desire the loyalty, the no shame you had with your husband before. You will desire the partnership God intended you for, but in this new world of sin, you're going to continue to want those things, but he's going to rule over you. Now, the man will rule over you. Is that God's plan from the very beginning? This says, actually... The man ruling over the woman is a consequence of sin. The man and the woman were made to be partners, opposite to one another, face to face. Because sin has entered the world, because selfishness has entered in the control, in, into the world, because control and power are now dynamics that didn't exist before, somebody's going to be ruling and it, the man's going to rule the woman. This is not God's prescription of how it should be. It's a description of how life is going to be now. And so you've got to ask, what went wrong? You see, we were created to rule the world together, right? That's what it says. Creating you in my image, male and female, to rule the world in my name. But rather than together as partners ruling the world... We're now trying to rule over each other. It doesn't mean that there's no leadership, but we were never meant to rule over one another. Never. We were always meant to be partners. And in fact, when you think about leadership, which leadership happens in every relationship, there's, there, 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 there's seldom a relationship where there's no leadership at all. So in a relationship... Where there's leadership, whether it's in the marriage or at work or anywhere else, what does God say about what leadership looks like? Listen to Jesus about what leadership looks like in God's world. Jesus called his disciples together and he told them, 
This is Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 44. You know what the rulers of the world, that they lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. Leadership, according to God, is servanthood. Not ruling. Ruling is what, in our sinful, broken world, we've chosen to try to do. I want to rule over other people for my sake. I want my group to rule over that group so that I get the advantages. But God says that's not the way it was meant to be. That's not the way it was meant to be in society, and it is absolutely not the way it was intended to be in marriage. When we find ourselves in our marriages trying to control or manipulate or gain a little bit of power so that we can get our way, when you find yourself doing that, Stop and say, this is not who I was called to be. This is not who I was created to be. This is not a good marriage. I'm not being a good husband, a good wife, when that's my agenda. I need to accept my husband, my wife. I need to put my wife, my husband, as my number one loyalty and priority in the world. And and God created me. God created me to be my wife's servant. God created me to be my husband's slave. Now that doesn't sit well from the world's point of view, but that's what makes an amazing marriage. When I can say my life is oriented toward helping my wife become the woman God made her to be in every part of life, if that's my job, That's going to determine every decision I make, every conversation I have, even the hard conversations. It's going to change the way I look at my marriage and who I am in this marriage. That it's an us, and God made me a part of this us so that I can serve my wife, your husband. Can you imagine how different marriages would be Just imagine, if you're married, how different would your marriage be if you both had that perspective? And by the way, if your spouse doesn't yet have that perspective, that doesn't give you a pass to not do it. That's the way we like to think, well, if if she's not going to do it for me, I'm not going to do it for her. Thank goodness God didn't say that to us. Well, if you're not going to love me, I'm not going to love you. I mean, God is not a kid. He's not a child. We often act a little bit childish, I hate to say. But my job, whether or not my wife is responding the way I want her to, my job hasn't changed. I'm still to love and accept and put her as my number one priority and be her servant. Meaning, not that I have to do everything she tells me to, but that my life is there to serve her and who God is calling her to be, who she was created to be. And by the way, how is your spouse ever going to learn what that looks like if you refuse to do that for them? If you want your spouse to change and be different and to get that best way for you to begin to live that out yourself. Another way, get together with other healthy couples so you can see something modeled that is positive and loving and serving. Marriage is not outdated at all. It is not irrelevant. It is not oppressive. It is the best gift of human relationship that God gave us. And even as I say that, I also want to say this. If you are not married, if you never will be married, that's okay. You do not need to be married to be fulfilled in life. You do not need to be married to live up to your full potential In God's world. Marriage is a gift, not a right. Marriage is a wonderful thing, but we can still have a wonderful life without it. You know, I was 
30 when I met Ingrid. 32 when we got married. And for 30 years, I was pretty darn happy being single until I met her. And I've been miserable ever since. No. <laughs> Again, second service, that'll be different. But, <laughs> but no, then I, I realized I am really missing something. And when she came along, I wanted to be married. In fact, I, right before I met her, I told one of my best friends, I said, you know, if God wants me to be married, he's going to have to, like, knock me over the head or something because I'm just really satisfied with my life right now. And God, in fact, knocked me over the head. But the point is, you can be very satisfied single. You can be miserable married as well. But the point is, wherever you find yourself, that's where God wants you to live faithfully as the person he created you to be, and if it's in marriage, love, accept, prize, cherish your spouse, serve your spouse. As scripture says, if you love your spouse, you love yourself. We do all this because that's what God does for us. He loves us, he accepts us, he forgives us, he, he gets rid of the shame in our lives. He gives us a new start every single day, even though we blow it every single day. And that's the love we're to give to each other. You know, if you have never received that love from God, it's, it's sort of hard to really give that fully to another person. You don't realize how much God loves and accepts you in your brokenness. It's hard to give that same love and acceptance to another person in their brokenness. But today, if you have not experienced God's acceptance of you, his love for you, his forgiveness for you through Jesus Christ, I encourage you today to give your life to him, to receive that kind of love so you can then share that with those around you, whether it's a spouse or a friend or any other relationship that you're in. You know, if you would like to receive the love of God, the forgiveness, the acceptance of God, I encourage you right now to just pray with me to give your life to him, to let go of control of your own life and, and give control to him so you can live a life of peace and blessing right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you created us to continue your work in the world and to pass on your love. And God, I want... I want to do that. But Lord, I want to receive your love. Not just in some general sort of theoretical way, but Lord, I want to be your son, your daughter. I want to be your image, living as your representative of the world. I want to love people the way that you love them. If I'm married, Lord, I want to love my husband, my wife, the way that you love me. And so I... Right now, I receive and accept the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Lord, I receive your acceptance. I realize that as I look inside and I see stuff that maybe you're going to say is too much, that you promise you will never reject me. So I give my life to you. I give control. I give power to you. Lord, Today I accept that I belong to you first. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.